Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. My name is Marty Plum and I am your host of a pen and a napkin podcast, the weekly coaching clinic that you can carry around with you in your pocket. Welcome to interview episode number 46. And we have the woman, the myth, the legend out of Sioux City, Iowa, Keelan Crusader, Creighton women's basketball assistant coach. And as we talked about before we got on the phone, a, a person from a family that is near and dear to my heart, Carly Berger. Some of you may know her more famously as Carly Tritz, the assistant women's, one of the assistant women's basketball coaches at Creighton University. Uh, but before we get into calling, uh, to talking to Coach Berger, and I, before we even get going with that, at some point I will call her Tritz, so let's just get that out of there right away. But before we get going, we want to recognize our podcast sponsor, Cosec Chiropractic, located at 14450 Eagle Run Drive here in Omaha. Coaches, if you have an athlete who is struggling with balance, neck, or spinal issues, have them go see Dr. Kevin or Dr. Heidi. You can give them a call at 402-964-0300 or check out their practice at kosakchiro.com. That's K-O-S-A-K-C-H-I-R-O.com. Follow us on Twitter, A Pen and a Napkin. Try to put out daily coaching tidbits on A Pen and a Napkin, so be sure to follow us there. Also, if you're listening, you're on SoundCloud or iTunes, so download, rate, review, give us five stars. Uh, with Carly on here, it'll probably be a six or seven star podcast. I'm guessing that right here. So uh, we want to gain momentum. We want to get the word out, uh, forward this out to like-minded coaches who have a growth mindset. And last but certainly not least, if you have any questions, comments, suggestions, or ideas, email me at a pen and a napkin at gmail.com. Carly Berger, how are you, young lady? I'm good. Thank you for having me on. This is this is nice. This is this is going to be good. Uh, Carly, would you would you like to explain to our listeners how how far back do we go? Oh, mid uh, or late nineties, maybe. Yeah, late nineties. Two thousand. I don't know. I'm trying to think. Yeah, a long time. It's basically been my entire life. I would say, you know. Yeah. The unfortunate thing is, I've known you more uh, more years of my life than I haven't. <laughs> <laughs> Chalk one up for burger, burger one, plum zero, and I would agree with you. You would probably your life would probably be better without me in it. I would I would be the first one to say that. So yeah, it's been a long time. It's, it's been a good good relationship, and like you said, um, our families are go way back and stay in touch over the years. So it's been cool. Yes, it has been. It has been. I, I've had the privilege of teaching both of your sisters. Uh, we moved from Sioux City before uh, before you got up to the junior high level. Uh, but uh, where did you end up going to middle school? Um, I went to Sacred Heart Middle School after the Holy Family system shut down. And yeah. In Peel and after that, so I just missed you. Yeah. Well, I would have been at I would have been at Sacred Heart if we would have stayed in Sioux City. So that's that's where they were going to transfer me. So did not align, but then they brought us both to Omaha. So here we are. Yes. Yes, we are. So, well, Carly Tritzberger. Um, the uh, how long it's been uh, four years now full time assistant at Creighton. Yeah, this will be going into my fourth season. Going this in. Fall year. Awesome. So, well, for those uh, for the folks that that are not familiar with the legend of Carly Tritzberger, um, tell us a little bit about your background, where you come from, uh, how you ended up at Creighton, um, and and how you are John Flannery's right hand woman today. 
Um, so I went to Hugh. I'm sorry, not John Flannery. Jim Flannery. What am I saying here? John's the brother. Sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead, Carly. John Flannery at Helan, which is kind of funny. But yeah, Jim Flannery's my boss at Creighton. Yep. Um, so I graduated Helan in 2010, um, committed to Creighton, was there until 2014, played and had a great experience. Um, had some injuries late in my career that kind of sidelined me and really cut, finally opened my eyes to hey, you got to get your life together outside of sports. You know, <laughs> you know, in your athletic career, you finally realize you got to, um, it's coming to a close, and what are you going to do with your life? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of a blessing in disguise, and I stayed on at, at Creighton as a, a graduate assistant, Flannery, and gave me a spot on staff, <clears throat> excuse me, on staff right away. And then as a video coordinator for a year after the two GA seasons, and then um, kind of, it's always timing and a little bit of luck, honestly. I mean, someone left. Um, and then there was a spot open, and I had been on staff three years in some logistical positions and, and really learned how the program ran from the ground up, which was kind of cool. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was helping everything from doing the laundry after practice to helping in scouts to video things and, and marketing and social media. So it was, I felt like I got, got my feet wet in a little bit of everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, this will be my fourth season as an assistant, and it's kind of crazy how. Uh, you know, I've been at Creighton for, this is my 10th year, I mean, 2010 to 2020, basically, um, as a player and coach and everything in between. So that's kind of uh, my rundown. That's how I became where I'm at. Now, you undersold your own athletic career a little bit, young lady. <laughs> I mean, well, you know. It was a long time ago. It's, my memories are getting blurry. Well, what was it? Now, for, for those of you that are listening here, national run, punt, and what was it run, punt, and pass? Is that what they oh, call the content? Going way back. I haven't talked about that in a long time. Yes, but what were you like, eleven or twelve when that happened? Yeah, that was a punt, pass, and kick. Punt, pass, so, a kick. That's what it is. Yeah. And um, that was, I think, my either fourth or fifth grade year. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And long story short, I mean, it's literally whoever throws it, punts it, and whatever catches it the longest total yards. You kind of beat your your city. A competition, then you go to like a regional competition, and I ended up getting them uh, on the halftime of a Kansas City Chiefs game, and it was <laughs> that actually might be one of my highlights of my athletic career. I'm glad you brought that up. But I was on the halftime of the Kansas City Chiefs at Arrowhead Stadium. Uh, me and my parents were sitting, you know, on the field next to the players during the game, and I got to go out there and throw a football in, in a Trent Green jersey. So that was the peak of my athletic career, and the rest has been. Not as good. Oh, come on now. Now, now, again, you're underselling it. How, you, can't, you can't beat that, though. Oh, that, that is pretty good. But but you were a national champion in your age division, which I don't care if it's checkers or, or, or uh, you know, playing war with cards. You were a national champion. So that kind of tells folks a little bit about your athleticism. Yeah, that's one way to, one way to put it. Yeah. So, and how many basketball state championships did you win in high school? Uh, we won two. Okay. Sophomore, year, yeah. yeah. And what, uh, you know, volleyball, how many? We won one as well. Okay. Lost a, lost, lost a volleyball, won a volleyball, and then won two basketball and lost one basketball. Okay. And none in soccer. That was always a little sour my athletic career. So in your high school athletic career, you played in five state championship matches, yeah. games? Yeah. Yeah. So you're so, and then you go to college, and you play in the NCAA tournament twice, or once. Yeah. Yes. So 
you're kind of given this whole blow-by thing on your own athletic career, but you were quite the accomplished young lady. Yeah, it was it was a fun time. I mean, from high school to college, I truly was a part of a lot of really good teams, and mm-hmm. I, I feel like I say that a lot, and I, I'm really not trying to deflect. It's, it's the honest truth. I mean, I could go back and rattle off how many college athletes I played with in high school, yeah. let alone Division One teammates in, uh-huh. in all sports. Mm-hmm. And then at Creighton, I felt like we had a really good good run and right going into the Big East Conference. I mean, what a better time to be at Creighton basketball during that, you know, the Doug McDermott era. I mean, that's those guys are in my same class, and I feel like we were just, I don't know, you're just kind of peaking at the right time, and then boom, you go to the Big East, and we found a lot of success. So mm-hmm. it truly was fun to be a part of those teams. Yeah. So the reason why I bring up that that you are not the normal um, person per se that goes into coaching in, in this what well, in, in this sense that well those of us that know you I mean the stories that Andrea Batenhorst has told me are unbelievable so <laughs> but but uh, but. You are, I mean, you have you have decent athletes that go into coaching. You have good athletes that go into coaching. You have non-athletic people like myself that go into coaching. But you were truly a great athlete, Carly. Um, so so the, the reason why I say that is um, you're going into this as this very, very highly accomplished, highly competitive uh, person who's played in state championships and NCAA tournaments. And I mean, that's a huge deal, Carly. Uh, so... I guess my my first real question is, you know, what was that transition like in in the sense of going from being this great athlete, and I don't care what you say, you're a great athlete, and and then going into coaching, and and what was that perspective like, and and what what were some ways where you think that really helped you in your transition into coaching, and and maybe in some ways it was uh, not, you know, some things you had to learn about being a coach. Mm Okay. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's there's some truth to not not all the best athletes and best players. I mean, they don't always make the best coaches. I think you can go down the line and and you know prove that point. But to your point about just playing different sports and being a good athlete, being part of different teams, I really try. Even I mean, till this day, I'm still growing in this, but I try to tap into the different roles I was able to play on each team. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like you mentioned, yeah, I'm a good athlete, but. At, like my teammates were great too and like I said we were on all these really good teams in volleyball and soccer and basketball and I didn't play the same role on each one of those teams um, so I tried to use that experience in the athletics world to relate to different kind of players and coaching because um, I'm a pretty relationship first kind of coach um, and you know there's there's some things that peer athletes they always talk about oh, you can't teach athleticism or you can't teach that feel um and I try to tap in, okay, so what's the IQ part of that feel outside of the athleticism? What am I looking for? What am I thinking about? Um, and I would really, especially that last year when I did not play, sitting on the sideline watching the game, um, it's just, it's so eye-opening. And I had never done that. Yeah. Really, I mean, ever um, on really good teams, because usually you're out there more than you're not on the bench. Yeah. Uh, so watching these athletes out there perform and see what their feel is like, um, for a whole season, you know, really got me to see the other side of sports, and I just try to relate. I, you know, I've been the kid off the bench. I've been um, the best athlete. I've been the injured kid. I've been the sixth man. I've been a woman. 
Uh, I feel like I've been different roles on a basketball team too, even at Creighton alone. So I just try to tap into those experiences versus, okay, my athleticism is comparable to this athlete. I'll be good at coaching her because that's, it's just not always the case. And if you only coach kids that are, <laughs> you know, like you, you're not going to make it very far and you're not going to be very good. Uh-huh. Um, so I try to use just different roles I've played. Um, and then my walking experience as a teammate, um, and how those relationships were with me and that teammate and that teammate with other teammates. So, and the, and the hurdle I just kind of mentioned earlier is there are some things where I can still jump in a drill and say, no, it's got to be, it's got to be this, you know, boom, boom here, or your feet got to be like this one, two. And if someone struggles with that and I'm doing it maybe more smooth because I'm a little bit better athlete, then I got to figure out, okay, how am I going to get this kid to understand it? How can I show her on film? Um, you got to find different ways to teach people. And that was a learning curve, I would say, instantly. That, that luckily I got to somewhat work through as a GA and a video coordinator getting on the court with these kids early enough. Um, but also I was fortunate to be around some really good development coaches in Linda Saivan Chen and Chevelle Herring. Um, she's not Chevelle Sansasi, but local people will know her as Herring um, mm-hmm. from Bellevue West. Uh, or excuse me, Bellevue East. And watching those two, who are also good athletes in high school and college, coach these kids and teach them skill development stuff, I mean, that was huge. Um, so I would say just trying to soak up as much as I could in those logistical years and then bring that to my coaching career. Do you think, you know, you were a, a three-sport athlete. Um, how much did that help your college basketball career? Oh, yeah. I, my first reaction is to say huge. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, I'm, I mean, everyone's got their own biases, and mine is that I'm a huge proponent of multi-sport athletes, and we love recruiting multi-sport athletes at Creighton, too. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, besides the, the literal, you're using different muscles, you're learning different skills, your hand-eye is different, sport to sport. Um, I mean, we, we love it when we get a volleyball player who's was a middle blocker because think about her lateral quickness. Mm-hmm. Um, we love it when we get a soccer kid because think about their endurance or think about just their footwork and the skills they have with their feet. I mean, reading it, the it, floor, all, reading the yeah, floor. It, yes, it just it just it it all translates into a, a more developed athlete and a more skilled kid that can pick up things. I would say quicker than it's not always the case, but they just, they just seem to pick up things because they have a, a wider range of skill sets athletically. Um, but I thought it was huge, um, and again because. Yeah, I'm learning different things in my body's being trained differently, but I was also truly different roles on each one of those teams. It's it's fun to go from being the main focus on a team to being maybe the third or fourth main focus, mm-hmm. um, or taking a step back, or maybe I'm a leader on one team and I got to be a follower on the other team. Um, there's so many benefits that that helped me um, in my college career. Do you think, and again, you know, you had, you know, your, your body just kind of broke down a little bit on you as you got older, but do you, uh, do you feel like playing college basketball as a full-time investment was in some ways easier because you weren't playing basketball 12 months a year for four or five, six years going into your college basketball experience? Yeah. I mean, you know, there's a flip you're going to switch, um, you kind of get in this, I mean, everyone was telling me, oh, I can't wait to see you just play basketball. It's going to be crazy. You know, your skill set, your focus. And, and there is some truth to that. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, once high school's done, um, you're really, you're totally bought into basketball versus high school. I can mentally turn that switch off, which I think is very healthy. 
mm-hmm. it's healthy to, to miss basketball season and when it comes around you're excited about it mm-hmm. uh, not to say that there aren't huge benefits to also playing you know year round or most of the year or getting that extra work and in club or playing with your team outside of the season um, but there is a healthy balance of taking breaks and and actually being excited to come back and, and we use that philosophy um, at Creighton we we don't keep our kids um, through the entire summer workouts we let them go home basically after July 4th until school starts in August mm-hmm. um, and we've noticed that kids really value that that we value that and they come back and they they're like hey we actually we actually missed you guys <laughs> <laughs> And as a coach, that doesn't come out of their, you know how that, that doesn't come out of their mouths that often. So, yeah. And they miss each other and they miss, I don't know, it kind of resets you and gives you that appreciation for when you are here, you're here um, kind of thing. And if you know you're going to be somewhere 12 months out of the year or doing something 12 months out of the year, it's, you see it as a, as a marathon and you're just trying to survive sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, there's, it was good to not have that, I would say, in high school for me personally, but. Yeah. Speak for everybody. Some, some, you know, a lot of times less is more. Yeah. 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 Quality over quantity. I think that's some of Flannery's. Um, he's just huge on that. Mm-hmm. Um, he's not going to keep you on the court for two hours, three hours. It's going to be an hour and a half, an hour, 45 minutes. And he knows that his coaches can't pay attention that long. So the players probably can't either. <laughs> ah. we're, we're getting in and getting out and um, trying to be efficient. Yeah. Um, What's what's some of the greatest lessons you've learned so far in your in your coaching career in your short coaching career? You know what are maybe what are you know how much what are some big things that you've probably changed from starting your career four five six years ago to now? How do you see yourself? How have you evolved? Oh, that's a great question. Um, uh, it's what I do. I give great questions, Cara. <laughs> Uh, I don't know about change, but this has always kind of been the forefront. And again, I'm very lucky and fortunate to be at Creighton. Um, I think this has always been the forefront of our program, but experiencing it on the coaching side, it's just always about people. We always put the player first and people first. And I think our coaching is relationship-based. And it is really hard to do. It's not to say that we're perfect at that, but we always say, you know, we want to get good kids, keep good kids, graduate them, um, you know, keep them here four years and, and hopefully win some games along the way. That's kind of the true goal because if you lose sight of that, it's, then it becomes all about winning or recruiting and the next best thing. I mean, it's so easy to lose yourself in that. Um, but as long as you keep the people first and then that relationship with that person, the coaching part can come pretty naturally because they end up trusting you. Mm-hmm. Um I mean, they're not going to really care. You're not going to really care what you have to say about them if you only talk to them between the lines, mm-hmm. um, or if you only talk about basketball, or if you only, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that's been something that's just been a constant, and I learned right away. And I feel like I've just gained even a more appreciation for that. Um, and even with our staff, uh, our, our assistants to head coach, I mean, it's very relationship based there too. It's not transactional. It's not. And we're all on the same path. We have the same goals. And you learn like, teamwork and working together. I mean, you learn that from so early on in your life. But to apply it to your professional life as an adult with other adults and you're mentoring and leading these young kids, um, to, for us to be on the same page. And, again, if, if any one of us strays aside from that goal, you know, it doesn't take much to, to, to ruin a really good thing that's, that's hard to maintain. 
Yeah. Um, so that's just been something I, I would be remiss if I didn't talk about at Creighton and my coaching experience, and that's starts with Flannery and, and he kind of keeps it going too. So mm-hmm. that's been something. Yeah, it's been huge. Yeah, and we'll get into that that culture that you guys have built down yeah. there uh, here in the second half. So don't give away too much from the second half here, Carly. I All won't, right. I won't. All right. All right. Actually, in actual basketball and like coaching skill development wise, I would say that. The, the work you put in with individual players, it it does it does it comes to fruition. Um, you're going to have a ton of team practices, and you know you're going to have a lot of group workouts. But to really invest in a kid and, and teach them the basics and get them to love that, I think that's something I've grown to really appreciate and have grown to put that at the forefront of my focus. Versus, you know, sometimes coaches get lost in okay, the scout or the opponent mm-hmm. versus what kind of have in front of them. So I would say I've definitely changed in that route, um, kind of putting our players first in development and then my priorities um, on the court. Mm-hmm. You are um, you are you are part of a, a, a growing sorority of of female coaches, up and coming female coaches. But in in large part, uh, the percentages tell us that. Even in the women's game, the majority of the coaches are male, um, and I and I think administrators probably would like to hire more female coaches. But in 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 a lot of ways, female females don't want to coach or have chosen not to. I should say, you know. And I was kind of thinking back to this, uh, you know, all of my interviews, um, I've only had. I think you're the second female I've had on all these interviews, Carly. Uh, which as a women's basketball coach, you know, and half of, I try to kind of split it 50, 50 between boys coaches and girls coaches. And, and you're the second female that I've had on. And, but there's just also at the same time, there hasn't been a ton of options um, to, to reach out to. So what, what do you think some of the reasons are why women have not chosen to go into the profession and, and maybe what are some ways in which you, as somebody who's very passionate about it, could could try and get more women uh, involved in coaching. Yeah, that's it is a. Um, I'm glad that it's you know trending upward, like you talked about, and it's a growing thing. Um, I mean, obviously, the more people you see that are like you, whether it's an ethnicity thing, a gender thing. I mean, if you see more coaches that look like you or, or talk like you or are are girl or female, you know, it's just more it's more attainable. Um, and I think that can be kind of that theory can be spread across a lot of jobs and a lot of ideas. Um, sure, that's one. So I think that's good that it's growing. Um, but I mean, there is the it is hard to be a mother and I think um, and a full time coach, whether it's at the high school, uh, college, or, or professional level. Uh, I think that that is something that's every. I mean, the the women that are um, you know mentors in my life in the coaching profession that I've talked to. Well, the first thing that always kind of comes up is like, gosh, how do you do it with two young kids, or how do you do it on the road all the time? And, mm-hmm. and it is different that that father that father and child relationship and the mother and child relationship. It's it's literally. I mean, if you're those early years, I mean, that's it's it's hard. Yeah, um, I think that is a huge hurdle that I've talked to many women about. It's not the only one, and it's definitely doable. I mean, I can give you plenty of examples of moms that are doing it right now uh-huh. um, and that will continue to but I mean that is a huge hurdle I think but yeah I just I think that it's it's kind of uh, a trend that 
hopefully gets to be more women in coaching and this thing keeps growing. But, I mean, if you think, though, I mean, the WNBA has only been around how many years? 20? 20, 20. 22, you know. Yeah, like, that's like kind of crazy to even think about. Um, so considering that our professional women's basketball has only been around that long, um, I'm just using that as an example to say, you know, women in coaching haven't probably been around that long. Mm-hmm. Um, I would love to know the first female head coach of any college, women, um, men. I mean, how long, how early was that in the process versus the man being a first head coach? I mean, they've always kind of been that coaching figure. So uh-huh. I think it's just a thing that will keep evolving, hopefully over time. But um, in my experiences and in my conversations, I think the motherhood piece is, is really challenging. And there is a certain, there's a certain, um, I mean, these, these kids you're coaching, they're your kids too. Yeah, and it's it's just as emotionally exhausting as it is physically um, in the season. How much time can you give your spouse and your own kids, and then the fifteen kids you're coaching too? Yeah, and I think it's just an emotional thing that is definitely um, a hurdle. Yeah, well, and then you have you have a tough game, um, and you, you you it's hard not to bring home with you as well. Yeah, yeah. You know, sure. I I remember there was a there was a game. Uh, it was we played a Saturday afternoon, and we might have been against Elkhorn or something, and, and we lost a lead, and we shouldn't have. We should have won, and I was really frustrated on the way home. And we had something going on with the, with the kids that evening that we had planned like two weeks in advance. And, yeah. and I told my wife, and, and you know she's terrific, you know, but she and she knew, and, and I go, I'm just letting you know. I'm going to do my best to not let this afternoon bother us, you know, to, to have this afternoon screw up what we want to do as a family this mm-hmm. evening, you know, and to try yeah. to compartmentalize that. Um, but it's hard. It's hard. It's hard. Yeah. You know, we've, we've definitely had that conversation too. It's, I, I think my goal is to love, love it the same regardless after the game, if it's, you know, I'm not going to run and go jump in his arms if we win and then barely talk to him if we, you know, <laughs> uh-huh. in the bed with the car ride. Like, you do have to flip a switch. It's almost like you're living in two separate uh, emotional worlds the second that game's over. Um, you're Batman. Yeah, yeah you, <laughs> you take your mask off and you're, you're a wife again, you're a mother again, and then you put the mask back on and you're... <laughs> crazy coach yelling on the sidelines and your hair's on fire, right? Oh, yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, yes. um, what's your career goals? What do you want to do? I want to... I'm, I'm not, you know, I think the natural question is, okay, when are you going to be a head coach? Everyone, the casual person always kind of asks coaches that, you know, in their mm-hmm. coaching career. Um, and I don't have a strong to strong desire to like go after a head coaching position in mm-hmm. the next 10 years or bounce around and get get experience in a power five or a football school or, or a big 10 you know i get that those are some natural stepping stones um that doesn't mean i'm not motivated to be the best i can be at creighton uh-huh. um and i've learned i know i haven't been around other schools as much as other coaches but i have learned that the grass is not always greener um, so my goal is to, to find the best fit at a school where the people, the kids, the culture, um, the ability to have success, um, and then the fit for my family. I think that's that's kind of my career goals. And it's I know I just tied my life goals kind of into it, but I don't really want to lose 
myself in, in a job um, and pick my family up and and move us, you know, four or five times. And that's not to say that that's a right or wrong thing to do. That's just a personal preference. Sure. Um, and I think if an opportunity came up where it is a job at a, at a Big Ten or Big 12 or some school, it would just have to be better than what's in front of me right now. Uh-huh. Um, I'm not going to go name chase or, or, or money chase, sort of say, and um, just personally. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those kind of values, I just, that's going to lead me, hopefully, in my career goals. And if a head coaching job comes up and I've been coaching an assistant for 10 or so years and I feel ready for it, then then I'll take it and I'll pursue it. Um, but at the moment, you know, I, I do really like Creighton a lot. I think I think we got a really good thing going. And the biggest thing is that I, I love the kind of kids we get. And yeah. I love our league, too. I mean, the Big East is such a hybrid in so many ways. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I don't have this dream job I'm chasing because I, I feel like I actually might be at it. But <laughs> yeah. I'm young, only in my fourth year, so I'm not going to stamp that yet. But, um, but if a head coaching job is something that I feel I'm ready for in the next decade or so, then I'll go, go for it. But at the moment, I mean, being an assistant is pretty cool. And there's a difference between a head coach and an assistant. I think you can attest to that as well. Um, a little bit. It, uh, they're, it's they're, a totally different career path, honestly. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that's that was kind of a broad answer, but I kind of like it that way, I guess. It leaves room yeah. to paint a different picture or to stay on the same path. No, you're, you're, you're 28 years old and... and um, <laughs> what? Almost thirty, I'm getting there. Yeah, well, we, well, let's not get into those numbers because now you're making me feel feel really old. But you know, you got a you got a lot to figure out, and, and things are going to evolve, and things are going to change. You know, and yeah. and yeah. and um, like you say, you know, you're uh, you, you're you're in a great place. You, you realize that, and that's the most important thing is is sometimes you realize you don't realize how good you have it and as you said you know the grass isn't always greener just because of this name or this uh situation that you see from the outside you get into it and you're like oh boy this is this is not what i was sold on or what i imagined this would be or what i was told it was going to be and then it gets tough and then you have some buyer's remorse and things like that so um john tritz John Tritz, your father. Yes. Good guy. Great guy. Great guy. Former Briarcliff Charger as well. An alum of the Harvard of the Heartland. Uh, I know he's had a big influence on you, uh, your coaching career, your athletic career, as has Lisa Tritz. Uh, but you put John Tritz on the paper, so that's what we're going to talk about. But, uh, but, but what, uh, what influence has your dad had on your athletic career, your, your, your playing career, and obviously most importantly on your, on your coaching career? Yeah, he's he's one of the smartest people I know, um, first and foremost. And I, I just think his emotional te- intelligence, his ability to connect with all different kinds of people, uh, his true leadership skills, uh, and then you match that with his ultimate positive mental attitude, which I think you can probably somewhat agree on that he's the most positive person you might know. He's definitely in my life. Like I said, um, he, he, he worked really hard for 48 hours to keep yeah, us from moving yeah. Omaha. So, you know, but it's not this, it's not this blind positivity, like everything's great. And I mm-hmm. mean, it's a, it's a realistic mindset. And mm-hmm. it's, um, it's a way he attacks the day, uh, a meeting, um, an interaction, a problem. It's just the way he, it's his approach to it. And I mean, it's just these things that, you know, like, 
they're, 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 they're cliches and they're phrases because they're true. I mean, but like if you're positive about things or if you can, you know, connect with someone to get a message across and they trust you because they trust your outlook, they trust your work ethic, they trust your relationship. I mean, that's totally him. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I've always known that about him, but you know how teenage girls can be. So maybe I didn't appreciate that until, you know, end of my college career. Um, I wish I would have talked to him as much as I do now during those tough athletic times. I mean, I would bounce ideas off of him, but I found myself more emotionally leaning on my mom because she's also a former athlete and has helped me a lot, but you know, she's your mom. So that mother daughter thing. Yeah. Um, but my dad is just this, and he's also coached um, at a lot of levels, but he's just this, this awesome leader. Mm-hmm. And I think he's the best leader I've, I've been around. And I'm like, I'm putting the dad hat aside. Mm-hmm. Um, I've just seen him in these settings with, his friends that are next to him, people that are older than him and above him, um, young people that he's helped, um, and he doesn't ever talk about it. I'll find I'll find out about it, you know, through the third party later or something. I'm like, oh, my, you know, he did that, and then and then I finally realized, I'm like, I should pick my dad's brain more. <laughs> he's the one of the best deliverers of bad news. He's he's great at it. He can give you constructive criticism and. You know, there's a way of words and messaging, especially nowadays, yeah. um, that's really important. Um, and I've just I learned a lot from him. But the biggest thing is you can't replace work ethic and your attitude. Mm-hmm. That is something that he's brought every single day that I've known him. Um, on his best days, on his worst days, he's consistent. And maybe the best compliment I can give him is that he's extremely consistent. Yep. And there's... That's just that's just huge in any kind of leadership role. Yeah, and, and you know, availability is an ability. You know, and and uh, you know, when you're consistent and you're available all the time, you know, you know, as a coach, uh, the hardest players to coach are the players where you don't know what you're going to get from them, practice yeah. to practice, game to game. You know, and and those are the frustrating teams to coach. Those, those inconsistent teams. You know, you, you can be okay with being average if you know that your team is maxing out and they're consistent and they're giving you everything that they've got the 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 most maddening teams are the teams that you know at your level you you, the number of games you play you you know you're playing 30 games let's say you know you've got you're 18 and 12 but you know you should be 24 and 6 but it's just the 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 inconsistency and and not showing up every day and being available and and that type of thing. So, uh, and, and as a coach, you have to be that. You have to be consistent every day with everything that you do. You don't get a day off in that regard. Right. So, yeah, and I think it, it's you got to be taught how to work hard too. I think people think it's just this natural skill, like oh, I work hard. Um, you know, everyone does it, so everyone thinks they're good at it, kind of thing. But I mean, he like taught me how to work hard um whether i figured it out early or late enough you know that's that's kind of where the journey is but like i watched his work ethic and i watched what it means to not complain and just and just do your job Mm -hmm. Uh, and i just feel like that's being taught how to work hard is a skill that i'm I'm grateful that he did for me since day one yeah he could play for belichick you know do your job yeah do your job. Do your job, yeah. Yeah. I think it's I think it's noteworthy. Your dad was a catcher in baseball in college. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I think there's a reason, you know, he's he's the, 
the captain of the team per se when he's playing catcher there and, and controlling the game in that regard. So I, I think there's a reason why he, he, he slid into those situations. So, um, so yeah, shout out to JT. Yeah, there you go. All right. Well, we're gonna we're gonna uh, we're gonna spin here a little bit, Carly, and uh, about halfway through, approximately, we we do our Don Meyer quote of the day here. So, and if you want to comment on this, feel free. All right. So, the Don Meyer quote of the day is: A coach who is not teaching leads to the worst thing in a program: players not learning. <laughs> I love it. He is, he is one of a kind, isn't he? He's, yes. I mean, my, my PE teacher in um, high school actually worked for him up at Northern, so I would hear these quotes quite often, but I couldn't agree with that more. Yeah. Uh, if your kids aren't, I mean, even slow progress is better than no progress. They got to learn something every single day, or at least get better at something every single day, and I think He's absolutely right, and if you're not, if your goal isn't to make these kids better, that's kind of what I was talking about earlier. If you lose track of the kids first, the players first, and teaching them and growing, you know, growing them and growing the game, then you're going to get into your own kind of individual career goals or career paths. Whether you know that can that can be a whole different thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just think it kind of speaks to putting that player first, doing your work, um, being ready every day to teach them something. And then just that messaging, um, keeping that at the forefront of your of your priorities. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, yeah, and, and you you have to have that. You know, one thing that I've really tried to sell, you know, my new kids on is we got to be one percent better every day. We, yeah, we just, I was going to say that actually. Stole it from me. Oh well, I stole no. I stole it from somebody else. So. <laughs> You know the best. The best coaches are not innovators; they're replicators. You know, right? Yeah. So, uh, and Don Meyer's a good guy to steal from. So, yeah, he's he's amazing. We we played them in a the women's team in a, a exhibition game, I think, two years ago. Uh-huh. Um, and they ran the same playbook. I swear that that he used to run the hundred plays and all the misdirection screening, throw it to the opposite side. I mean, you got your head's on a swivel um, playing those kind of teams. So. Yeah, learned a lot about him over the years, both on and off the court. Uh, very much a legend in the coaching world. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, let's get into your stuff here. Let's get into, and, and there's a couple of things I really want to talk to you about, uh, Carly. And obviously, I've seen you guys play. I don't know how many times. But thank you very much for all the free tickets you've given me all over the years, by the way. Uh, but um, your guys is motion offense, and I think with females, uh, you know, it's harder it seems to be harder to teach a pure motion offense than it is guys because in in large part especially with high school kids it's it's uh girls just don't play as much pickup games uh that type of thing uh as as males do and i and i know i'm stereotyping here a little bit but what you guys do at creighton is really a a pure motion type of movement thing with some different wrinkles, a lot of back screens and flare screens and, and different things like that. Um, you know, how, uh, how do you guys teach that so well? Where, where, where does the thought come from, uh, the philosophy? Uh, how do you guys break it down, uh, that type of thing? And I know Flan's been running that stuff for years. Uh, so, you know, I'm going to just kind of turn the floor over to you here, and I'll probably pepper in some questions as you're talking. 
but just kind of go into your, because I, I think it's, you guys are really, really efficient uh, in the half court when you get five on five. And, and obviously, you have good individual players. I mean, you have your first WNBA player in, in program history and Jalen Agnew that's in the going to be starting here in a few days in the league. Uh, you know, that type of thing. So great players help you look smarter. I get that. But also, uh, your, your scheme and your system is, is pretty unique. And, and without giving away too many trade secrets... Um, you know, um, I don't need Flan knocking on my door here. Actually, he'd be more mad at you. I just asked the question. You're the one that gave it all away. So, um, but but just kind of go into how, uh, what you guys do um, with your motion and 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 how you guys how you guys teach it. Maybe some drills. You know, some stuff that you guys do. So, the floor is yours, Miss Mrs. Miss Mrs. Berger. Excuse me. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. I was just thinking, I'm like, how much can I say without giving away our program secrets, right? Yeah. <laughs> no, um, and, I, and I see what you're saying with the men versus women uh, pickup games. And based on my experience, I, got, I have to disagree a little bit only because we do bring in some practice guys, okay? Mm-hmm. And my experience with teaching them, because they have to learn some kind of motion or because they'll play with our girls and they'll play against them. Okay. Uh, so guys, if you want to really kind of stereotype, are genuinely or generally, you know, a little more athletic, uh, a little more bouncy. You know, they just they, they bring a different feel than yep. the girls' game. Sure. Um, that being said, this is kind of why I say I disagree a little bit, is girls have to be more skilled. Um, they have to be a little more intentional. Mm-hmm. Um, they have to be more precise. And, they, and I think that girls tend to be pleasers more. And so when you get that combination of, okay, I want to do the right read, I want to learn, I have to beat these guys in practice because they're more athletic than me, um, how do I do that? And mm-hmm. that's where the motion, the preciseness of what Flan teaches. Um, if you know anything about Flan, he's extremely a numbers guy. He's an angles guy. He's very precise about what he wants. And then the rest of it is kind of teaching the players how to play basketball. Sure. Okay, so yeah. that's why I like to think that actually our girls are, are better at motion than most of the guys that I'm coaching on our practice team because guys just think I can be a little bit a little bit sloppier because I'm more athletic and that will make up for it. Yeah. Well, and, and, and I say that with having most high school programs in mind with that, yes. Carly. You know, so yeah, I, I, and I totally understand what you're saying as well. So In my world, there's my perspective, and I totally get where you're coming from. Sure. Yep. Um, so that being said, the motion step. Okay, so we talked about how we want to score off of the screen and the pass and player movement. That's kind of our goals. Uh, we rarely, we have had players in the past, but we rarely have this kid that's just like, all right, space the floor and go one-on-one. Um, or late shot clock ball screens. I mean, we'll do that. But, like, we don't usually have this heavy, heavy ball screen motion um, compared to, like, in Oregon, you know, with Sabrina Ionescu. Yeah. She's a very good ball screen user, elite, and that's kind of what starts their motion versus bringing it to us and we're more of a player screen team, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, I think the way Flan teaches it is, is obviously um, the biggest part about how our kids learn it. I mean, he literally starts drills and early on in the season – We'll do two on zero screening. <laughs> mm-hmm. Everyone's like, well, what the heck is that? You know, and it's literally two offensive players, and they're doing four or five screens back and forth, kind of one starting on the low wing, one starting on the top dish, and okay, pass it to the coach, and you two get into three or four screening actions, go. Um, and when you introduce this to high schoolers or, you know, our freshmen, it's very, uh, it is kind of funny to watch the first couple weeks because how many, how many high school teams run a really good motion or how many studs in high school actually had to go set a bunch of screens yeah 
because usually they're coming off the screens or they're being screen for, et cetera. Um, so when you think about that perspective, hey, re- really- real quick on that, will you look at a kid sometimes as you're recruiting them and you'll say, you know, you're too ball dominant. You're not going to fit in with us because when you don't have the ball in your hands, you don't do anything. Yeah, it, it depends on how much of a stud they are. Honestly, like yeah. if they're just an awesome one on one on one scorer. We can teach we can teach them how to be better off the uh-huh. ball. But but if they're you know, and I attribute it to sure coaching. Maybe someone hasn't told them. Um, you know, you got to cut, you got to move. But yeah. there is a certain like urgency of playing the game that you should be moving. Yeah. Um, like get out to the three or run the floor hard or cut through the lane. Did you change sides of the floor at all? Um, you know, if we expect all these high school kids to be great screeners before they get here, then we probably wouldn't have jobs. Sure. So, yeah. So the movement part piece, yes, we do look at that. Okay. Um, again, unless they're just this awesome <laughs> on-ball scorer. Yeah. Um, unless they're Carly Tritt. Extra. I will say it's extra um, attractive when they are a great off-ball scorer. When they score off the cut a ton. Or if they're just a screener already, we're like, okay, we got to get this kid. Yeah. So, so anyways, yeah. So it, it's kind of funny to watch these high school studs come in and learn how to screen against no defense um, the first couple weeks. Yeah. <laughs> so we, we truly start there. I mean, that's the bare bones of teaching screening. You know, then we'll add one defender. Okay, someone go guard the girl that's receiving the screen. And then, I mean, how many kids in high school know what a curl read, a flare read? a straight read, a bump, a backdoor cut. I mean, they don't truly know what those are. They maybe do it naturally, some of it. But teaching them what that is and why they should apply it and then showing them on film, that takes it to a whole another level of IQ, mm-hmm. mental IQ. And, uh, and we just put so much emphasis on that. It sounds so simple and it may be ridiculous like that we're doing two-on-zero screen, but if you don't start there, then you're going to miss steps and then we're going to assume they know things that they don't and then it's not going to be as fluid. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the screener, um, so we talk about the person that receives the screen a lot, sure, but the screener is usually the kid that's, one, more important, and two, open most of the time. Um, because if that, the screen receiver makes the right read, what, whatever it is, a lot of times if it's the correct read, they're going to attract that the screener's defender. Mm-hmm. Or they're going to attract two, or they're going to take two with them, or they're going to miscommunicate. And that truly is the, the main goal of our motion, I would say, is to cause defense to miscommunicate or mess up. Um, if we only set one screen in an entire 30-second possession, then we're only creating one opportunity for that the defense to mess up, technically, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, but if we set four screens or five, I mean, you're basically testing, like, all right, defense, sure, you might guard the first three screens, but can you guard for all 30 seconds? Can you guard five or six screens? Yeah. I mean, that's pretty hard to do. Yeah. Um, and so once you kind of ingrain that into our kids about – you got to be shot ready, pass ready, and then if you if you can't shoot it, move it. And then once you move it, once the ball's out of your hand, what are you doing? Are you spacing or are you screening? Um, and then once the season goes on, you learn, okay, Jalen's a stud. We need to screen for her more. Um, or this kid, she's a really good shooter, so let's let's run her off screens. But let's make her a screener, so then if she does, if she is open, she can shoot it. Um, you kind of learn the the feel and the identity of your players, and and they do too. And then you learn out what you know. You learn which kids work well together. Um, these two kids they screen together a lot. So let's run some sets with these two kids on the same sides. Um, or let's run. Sometimes we'll give our teams um, calls, and we change them every year. But like we'll give our teams calls for what kind of motion. Let's say we want everyone to run through the. Everyone has to change sides of the floor at least once in the possession. 
um, that'll be a kind of motion. So it's more of a cutting moving. Uh, let's say we got throw inside for an in-to-out action. At least once in the possession, that'll be like a motion with a five-player touch. And then again, you just have your, your down screens or your flare screens, what type of screen motion we want. So we'll give them, you know, concepts and a little bit of structure, but that's why, you know, recruiting kids with feel, at least some of it, um, and teaching them the game of basketball and why they're making certain reads, then you can let them go out there and play and figure it out within the motion. And that's what's really hard to guard is the unpredictability of motion. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's kind of what Flan, he likes that, and that's why we probably run 75% motion and then I would say 25 or so percent sets. Mm-hmm. Um, so hopefully that gives you a good look in what we prioritize and, and kind of how we teach it, <clears throat> excuse me, and then how it evolves over the season. Mm-hmm. How many... You know, on average, just out of curiosity, because like I said, I, I see guys play all the time, whether it's on TV or, you know, driving the 12 minutes downtown. But, you know, how many sets does Flan have on that little note card that he keeps in his shirt pocket? <laughs> That's such a good question. Oh, man. Oh, and it's funny because he's a guy that we do like, we'll have a fist set. Okay, let's say it's called fist. Yeah. And then in the next three weeks, we'll have a fist across, fist down, fist sideways. Yeah. <laughs> like, we have all these wrinkles. So technically it's like one set, but now we're going to run it this way. So it's a new set and we might go back to the old one, you know, a month late, I, you know, so technically it might only be 10 or so sets on his, on his note card, uh-huh. but it's really like a wrinkle of potentially 20 or so sets. And you know, he's got his own stuff and it's based on the bounds. But if I'm talking man, you know, half court versus man sets. Uh, he's probably got, I don't know, I, I would guess 10 man sets, five, four or five zone, and then we usually have like a one through six or seven kind of BOB, mm-hmm. SOB sets. Um, so <laughs> that's my answer, but who knows what's on that sheet of paper, right? I mean, <laughs> you, you've never been privileged to see it? I mean, I've seen them, but like, it's it's not something he shows us before every game. Like, okay, guys, here's what's on my card. We we talked about like okay, we need to run more downscreen sets for this team because they jump to the basket. So mm-hmm. then let's take out half of our predominantly flare screen sets. Mm-hmm. Um, you know if that makes sense to you. Uh, yeah. So we kind of tailor. I know his card changes and tailors every game. Yeah. Um, or every weekend in conference, so it's kind of. But it's Flander, you know. He could have. He could have like numbers written on that card, and it can mean everything to him and nothing to someone else. I mean, he's the kind of guy that like memorizes phone numbers so that's where maybe he should have said that first and that's why it would make sense that I, I have an idea what's on his card but yeah I, he is my cell phone number my parents cell phone number memorized so that gives you an outlook and kind of how his brain works you know he you, you could tell him there's this thing called a contact list that he can plug into his cell phone <laughs> trust me trust me marty i've i tried that you know he has gotten better i will I shout him out um he learned you know copy and paste and he's no, he knows how to <laughs> get on the browser by himself. <laughs> no, I've been a time. He's actually not too bad. He's made a lot of uh, technological jumps in the last few years, but he does have his quirks with his numbers and his little note card. Um, yeah, so we, I would say it's probably 20, 25 sets on there. We, we all have our things. Like, we'll be, we'll, be, we'll be in the middle of a pregame warm-up and, you know, some random 80s song will come on. And I'll be like, I'll grab a kid out of a label. Like, hey, did you know that uh, Ario Spudewigan hit number one with this song in 1984? They were they were number one for three weeks. Kids looking at me like, yeah, so Coach, we got a game in ten minutes. I'm like, Yeah, but you need to know this, you know. His, 
phone numbers, so. Yeah. Yeah. And I will say, you know, the, the, the specials, he runs late games. Those are those are not on his note card, to my knowledge. Those are mm-hmm. flannery specials. Um, usually, I mean, he has an idea of how he thinks we're, we can score late game, especially when yeah. the game's getting tight. And I don't know if you've noticed, but we, we do save um, a lot of our timeouts, too. Sure. Uh, but it's been really cool to watch him throw a set together either to win the game to force overtime mm-hmm. um he just puts these he puts these kids that are either having a good game or historically they run this set well um he gets them in the right spots to get the right shot that we want and if mm-hmm. we miss it we'll live with it because he's going to put us in this in the best position to win mm-hmm. and i think that's a really cool skill to have um to kind of make up something on the fly and again he has his just kind of blueprint of a majority of those sets and tweaks them. And I think that's um, something he's really elite in. Yeah. When you guys are, as your motion offense evolves throughout the season, you said you kind of narrow some things down. Have you ever done something where it's like, okay, um, we need person X on the floor, but they're not picking up on our motion as quickly as we would like, or they're struggling with it, but God, they, re- they, they hit, they crash the glass so hard on both ends so hard, or they're, they're such a good defender or whatever their other skill may be, but maybe they struggle to pick up the motion. Are there, are there situations where you guys have had to say, okay, Hey, Susie, Mary, Becky, we just want you to do this and this in our motion. And that's all we're going to ask you to do. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Especially with, with freshmen and sophomores, especially with young, really athletic kids too. Sometimes, you know, they get so sped up um, in their younger, earlier um, freshman and sophomore years of their career, just naturally. Mm-hmm. But especially, like, the athletes that are, they, they just want to make the read that they already predetermined, and they're going to catch it and put it on the floor right away. Yeah. You know, th- that's that, those are really hard habits to break. I think film does wonders teaching kids, kind of, you know, really showing them, hey, this is what it looks like when you catch and dribble every single time. Like, you see how it's stagnant or the ball is sticking or our spacing is all of a sudden t- terrible, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they really, they do respond to film because, you know, we have a phrase, uh, film don't lie. <laughs> yeah. So whatever happens in practice or a game, we'll see it the next day and, you know, film don't lie. But, so I would say yes and then um, hopefully those young kids and they do learn and the pace of their learning obviously is going to usually correlate with their playing time too. I mean, that's just the nature of sports. Yeah. Um, but if they can really crash the glass or they get us extra, extra possessions, exactly what you said, or they're a great on-ball defender. I mean, you can live with some bad reads here and there and some over-dribbling because, geez, they're getting they're a great screener. Maybe they can't read screens, but they know how to go hit bodies. Yeah. Um, or they know how to – they know that Jalen Agnew is really good, and they go find her. Mm-hmm. Um, like, there's a huge value in that. Mm-hmm. It, it is hard to reassure these kids that, hey, you might walk off the floor with zero points and two rebounds, but – you, you drew a charge, and you got Jalen two screens that she either got fouled on or made a three, and, and then she had a 25-point game because she got going. Yeah. I mean, that's that's massive. And to get kids to buy into that um, and to buy into why that and why motion is awesome because of that, I mean, that's something that's, that's on us to teach. But you can live with those kind of kids if they can grasp that. Well, and I think that's important that you sell that because all of the kids that are going to play for you are studs in high school. I mean, there's a reason why they're playing Division One at a Power Five or Power Six or however the Big East is classified. You know, you guys are going after studs. You know, most of your kids are going to be between 15 and 25 points a game for the most part playing in in, in high school. Now they come 
and now you only have one or two studs a year, and now your other 10 to 12 kids are going to be quote-unquote role players. Now, again, Jalen Agnew is a role player, but her role is to score, as an example. You know, So you, you have to sell those new roles uh, in a different way. And, and it's just like a, the, the best player on your eighth grade team when she comes in and, and she plays JV, let's say. But she's playing JV, but she might be your third best player on your JV, and she's not going to touch it or shoot it as much as she as she did before. You know, so you know how much time do you guys spend on explaining to kids and educating your kids about their roles and why those roles are important? And you've kind of touched on it already, I guess. But you know how 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 important is that in your process? Oh, it's huge, and it's it's everything. Um, from them being in the locker room without the coaches to game time execution. I mean, for them to really buy in from start to finish to game time to practice. I mean, it it's the hardest part of coaching, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, outside of the off court, you know, the off court things, the other hats you got to wear to help them out in those areas. With basketball, I think that's the hardest thing to teach kids. And it's not that they're selfish, and it's not that they're bad kids. Mm-hmm. But it's just like you said, they're in their short life experience, that's all they've known is that they're number one or number two. Um, and now they they ha- they kind of got to they gotta bend, you know? They got to be different mm-hmm. without breaking, without totally crushing their confidence or or something that's they take pride in. Um, and one kind of phrase I've, I've talked about with our kids a ton is just zooming out. And I got this from Coach K. Um, and it makes so much sense. Like, you think back to when you're in high school and college, I mean, your life is, it's so right in front of you. You have blinders on, it's just this little circle right in front of you, right? Yep. Thing that happens, whether it's a family thing, a sports thing, a friends thing, it's so massive in your small circle that you're seeing in your life. Um, you overreact or you're emotional about it. But if you can zoom out and see what's in front of you um, at such a wider lens, and mm-hmm. you literally think you have a camera, you know, yeah. If it right in front of you, all you see is this little circle, then your world's going to be crushed by really small things or things that you think are bigger than what you are, like a new role, mm-hmm. per se. Yeah. But if you zoom out and see, like, wow, it's, it's not that bad that I used to score 20 in high school and I'm going to score maybe 10 points on a NCAA tournament team um, with the WNBA player as my teammate and we're going to compete and win a Big East championship. Yeah. I mean, that's the goal. Yeah. Um, and getting them to buy into that starts with, Two on zero screen. Yeah. <laughs> Big East Championship. Okay, we'll start with two on zero screen. Exactly. Um, a tournament. All right, we're going to start with conditioning in the fall. Mm-hmm. Um, and your roles kind of develop and evolve over time, sure. And hopefully, individual players get better and they gain more confidence and they gain more playing time. That's in a perfect world. Mm-hmm. But then, what are you going to do to help your teammate out? Because when you zoom out, you're going to start seeing your teammates. Yeah. And then, if you dive into something else that's not yourself, you're going to you're going to be a great teammate and then your problems aren't going to be that bad. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of that whole circle of just zooming out, I would say. Yeah. I always, uh, you know, raising young children around this time, you probably remember this movie, Carly. Um, what's it called? Ants. I believe it's the, yeah, Yeah. it's the one where, where the, uh, the grasshoppers take all the ants' food, yeah. and then the ants finally decide to fight back because the the weird bugs come in and all this other stuff, you know. But at the end of the movie, I always remember this. Um, they they zoom out, as you said, and it's we've spent an hour and a half 
with this this whole story and you zoom out and you find out that it's just based on this one little anthill in the middle of this stream in the middle of nowhere and it's and and i always you know it's 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 something i've always kind of kept in mind is you know these problems these issues they're very minor compared to everything else that's going on and you got to think about other people and that type of thing too so and it's not to diminish their their issues because they're real yes to give them perspective and to, to help them problem solve, really. Yeah, yeah. Um, how much do you see with your guys' – how much of your motion stuff do you carry over? Obviously, you're running it a ton against man-to-man, but you but you carry it over – uh, how much of that – how many – how much of that – I can't say this question. <laughs> how much of those motion concepts do you carry over when you see zones? Or, or, or is it – you know, some some pretty radical changes when you start seeing zone. Yeah, and I, I probably haven't talked enough about spacing and how huge that is um, outside of screening too. But that spacing is probably the biggest thing that carries carries over to the zone um, plays that we have in the half court. You know, it's it's all about finding gaps. I think uh, the hardest thing to teach our kids when we're teaching them, you know, okay, here's our zone set. <clears throat> Um, but that doesn't mean go to this spot and stand here. It means you got to find that that gap between the zone defenders. Um, and again, that's a spacing concept. Or you got to get to the actual corners, the true corner, um, not the low wing. Not don't drift up because then that stretches out how many players that zone person can guard. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we run a lot of overload or you know, kind of deception type of zone sets. You know, you pass it up and then you throw it back to where it You know, simple concepts that everyone kind of does, but. But the spacing aspect of it is something that really relates, I would say, from motion to zone, um, or man to zone, excuse me. Because, like, you can't just... The biggest thing is our kids will, will hide behind defenders sometimes in a zone. And they're like, well, you told me, you know, to go to the elbow. It's like, yeah, but it's more of a... In zone, it's more of a concept, because what if that defender's on the elbow? Mm-hmm. You know, the, then you got to go to the, kind of the mid-free throw line. you gotta, you got to hold your cuts now versus cut through the lane. you got to kind of pause now and and make different kinds of reads. Now you're not reading necessarily screens um, that you're being set for, but you're reading defenders um, in a different way. Mm-hmm. So I think the reads carry over, um, but the spacing is is what's huge. Uh, and you got to be able to pass. Like I, I love getting kids that are 5'10", but I'm sure everyone does, because they can throw um, an overhead pass, or they can see over the zone. Their vision is, is good. Um, they're just a little bit more versatile there. So... Getting that passer in that paint area in the lane, free throw line, that's huge in a zone. And then um, just the spacing of finding gaps, cutting and replacing, cutting and filling. And then, um, you know, we always talk about kind of throwing it back where it came from. Because once you get defense to shift one way, boom, they're going to be weak right back where you came from. So throw it to that side. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I would say the spacing, but the um, Flans, yeah, again, I think he's really good with the zone stuff too. He just, he can manipulate how the defense shifts almost perfectly how he wants it to get the ball back to a space that he feels that's the best shot or the best look we're going to get. Mm-hmm. So there is this other side of the ball, and 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 both both you and the <laughs> men are yeah yeah you you do have to defend the other team. They are allowed to have the ball uh, from time to time. Yes, yes, but I I know you guys do. Um, you know, kind of your the the men's team at Creighton. They're pretty just. We're going to go man to man. Maybe a little bit of a zone wrinkle every now and then, but they're pretty much straight up man to man. 
you guys are going to play man, but you'll change it up. You'll pick up full court sometimes. You'll throw some junk out there. You know, what are some things that you guys do to implement your defensive system and, and have that uh, versatility to kind of match up your, 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 you know, you have options or you choose to have options defensively to throw at an opponent? And, and what do you see? What do you base those things on when you decide to make those changes defensively going into a ball game? Yeah, we are very heavy man as well. Um, and we always have one defense that can either switch the game up via press or some kind of junk in the half court to switch the momentum of the game if we can't score, if we can't get stopped. So you kind of have your something to change the pace, something to change the flow, and then your, your core defense. So we switch a ton, um, and I think that's what our favorite defense is, is to go somewhat small, to have five people out there that can at least make a three or have perimeter skills. Um, you know, when we have our traditional five in, we'll say, okay, we'll switch one through four and try to keep our five on their five as much as we can. But the way our league is set up, I mean, and maybe you've picked up on this watching us, but the Big East doesn't have this big six four six five back-to-basket killer down there. Yeah. You, yeah. We have the, our, the best post the last couple of years was like a 6-2 uh, post from Butler, um, and that's not like this monstrous. But yeah. She was really skilled, you know. Yeah. So, so the way our league is set up kind of benefits that too. Um, and we're very scout. We're a scout team, so if we want um, a certain matchup, we'll always try to tailor that um, on a dead ball or when we when we make a basket. But for the most part, we teach our kids. You got to know something about each player because we do switch a lot. You can't ask Temi Sarda, Jalen Agnew to be locked into this player and that player, and then know nothing else about these other kids, right? Mm-hmm. And that's the biggest challenge I would say of man is it's hard to ask college kids to remember what hand and if that kid can make a three for 10 different players yeah um but that's that's their job and that's our job to scream at every catch um <laughs> and that's kind of the i would say there's pros and cons to every defense and that's the biggest con of man and switching is knowing every scout but but it's it's better than i don't know to me it's better than sticking to your matchups and then you have no help um <clears throat> excuse me you have no help on screens or yeah you know, or your or your transition defense um, is compromised because everyone's like, no, I have to get that player. Well, you know, transition is you just gotta get back and stop the ball. Yeah. Um, so I think our kids catch on more to to hey, we're gonna switch everything. So pick someone up in transition. But when we can control it, we really want Jalen on this kid, and you know, et cetera, et cetera, down the line. Yeah. And that's kind of the core of our defense. And again, we'll switch it and collapse on some kids or not guard some kids as much based on the scout of the opponent. And I'd say we're a pretty heavy, pretty heavy scout team. Um, we're a good basketball team, and we have good athletes. But if we relied on that, I don't think we'd be near as successful. We, we're just not that kind of yeah. show five athletes out there and then just stay in front of them. That's that's not going to work for us. How do you guys narrow that down? So I mean, basically, you know, twenty-two from from Marquette is a, a, a dead catch and shooter. You just just how do you break down that personnel, knowing you're going to to switch? Uh, frequently, we'll just use that yeah. word. Frequently, you know what? Are, what? Are, uh, how do you take all the information that you have to narrow it down so that your kids can understand your scout um, and 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 be reactive uh, or to be proactive and not reactive to your situations out there? Yeah, and I think it's um, it's playing percentages at the core. You're not going to take away everything. I mean, geez, like. Even UConn gets scored on, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, once or twice. 
You know what I'm saying? I mean, you can't expect your kids to go out there and have perfect defensive possessions every single time, but it's about playing percentages. So, again, if, we, if we're playing Marquette and this kid is a you know, 20, 30%, 25% three-point shooter, um, but she's a really good right-hand drive, if we, we, let's, let's give up contested threes versus letting her get to the rack all night. Mm-hmm. Um, and not, not give up, but we'll live with her making contested jumpers, contested threes versus we can't get, let her get 10 free throws on right-hand drives or, you know, five easy layups or something like yeah. that. You, you, you try to get these kids to buy into, just remember that this kid, run her off the line. She's a shooter. She cannot get over the threes tonight. Yeah. Um, you might still be mad, sure, if, she, if we run her off the line and she makes a dribble jumper, but geez, the percentage of her making dribble jumpers throughout the year has been this or that. So mm-hmm. we'll live with that. So that, that kid's categorized as a shooter. Um, and you kind of go from there. And then with these really good one-on-one players that our league has, it's a pretty guard-heavy league um, in terms of the, the scores are the guards, or ball screen, transition. Um, it's about kind of team defense, too. Mm-hmm. So if the focus is number 22 from Marquette or number whatever from DePaul, then that means it's not just the on-ball defender's focus, but it's the the people right next to them in gap um, or the help side. <clears throat> I mean, you you got to be more focused on getting the ball out of this kid's hands or, you know, building a wall and, and being in gap on this kid. Then if she kicks it, let's make this other kids beat us, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, I think all coaches kind of have that mindset, especially in high school when there is one stud um, or two studs usually. You're gonna, you are gonna you want to make other kids beat you and you want to make your the other stars and their team beat you in different ways. Yeah. It's obviously a much harder said, uh, you know, easier said than done. But that's kind of what we get our kids to buy into: is this kid's a scorer, this kid's the next scorer, and then here's your shooters, here's your kids that can't really make threes, uh, here's your offensive rebounders. We got to make sure these kids don't get offensive rebounds tonight. So you're kind of almost making individual goals out there um, of what you want these other opponents to do or not to do. And then um, you just don't want your you don't want your kids to think too much too. Yeah. Because there's something to be said for just playing hard and diving on the floor. I mean that's pretty old school, but like playing hard, diving on the floor, and rebounding. I mean if we can get be a one shot defense team, oh we're gonna have a huge you know way higher percentage chance to win the game. Yeah. Because all that scout doesn't matter if we're giving up O boards, et cetera, and all that stuff. Yeah. So yeah. That's kind of where we start, and then. If we need to do less scout or more scout based on how we feel we match up against this team, we'll go from there. If I had a nickel for every time I said in my coaching career, win the first shot, you you can ask your former roommate, Andrea Batenhorst, how many times I I said that, and she would say, many, two billion. Yeah, that kid that you mentioned earlier, maybe she doesn't get motion as well, sure, but she's literally saving us um, on the glass. She's rebounding, and that kid's going to stay in. Yep. you need kids that are going to help each other out and then communicate their butts off and, and rebound the ball Yeah. at the end of the day. not Your, your whole toolbox can't be filled with just hammers or just screwdrivers. you got to have a little bit of everything. So. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Last thing, Carls. Uh, I, I think it's really unique, and again, you know, uh, I'm, I'm a little bit closer to this than, than a lot of situations, but... Uh, your, your culture at Creighton, I think it's a, I, I can't, I think it was maybe Fritchie that told me this, but you know, Flan hasn't had a kid transfer out of your program, and I want to say something like fourteen years or some crazy number like that. Um, and I don't, I don't know what the, the the actual number is, but it's something like that to to be at a Division One program and not have a player transfer out. 
uh, for that long. Um, I mean, you see turnover now. It's it's commonplace every year. There's kids transferring out uh, with 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 even the best programs. Uh, you guys have very little of that, almost none to speak of. Um, what is uh, how do you, how have you guys created that? You know what what has what has been the key to bringing in and and I know a lot of it starts with the recruiting process. You identify people that you think are going to fit what you want. You identify families. You identify parents that are going to believe in the same things you guys believe in, and and all that stuff. But once they get on campus, uh, you know you guys have done an incredible job of keeping kids there for four and five years, or in your case, ten. Um, you know, you know. The student of the decade, Carly Tritz. Yeah, that's, that's me. Uh, uh, but, uh, you know, what have you seen? And you've had the perspective of player, GA, and now coach. Uh, what's, 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 the, what's the key to your guys' just over-the-top awesome culture? Yeah, well, thank you, first off. And I think, I think it's 2008 or 2008-9 season, so 12 years, we'll say. Okay. Uh, which is, I mean, still it incredible. It's, it's the thing that we're most proud of also. Um, I mean, rightfully so. Again, it matches what our mission is and what our, our goals are as a staff is, like I said, get good kids, keep them, hopefully win some games. And that's and that speaks to that. And it's, it does start with recruiting and parenting. I think you hit it on the head there. Um, but, you know, once, you, once, you, once that started in 2008 and 2009 when you had kids that are staying, uh, it's so much easier to keep kids when you have juniors and seniors in the locker room. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's just something you can't put a price tag on. It's so, it's it's awesome. I mean, think about freshmen and sophomores and all the troubles they go through in basketball, in life, all that stuff. Just adjusting to college in general. Right. Yeah. I, think, I mean, if you don't have a good teammate that's already been through that, because coaches, sure, they can lean on us, and we have a great relationship with them, but it's not the same as your teammate. Mm-hmm. Um, and to have a junior and senior in the locker room to tell that freshman or sophomore, like, hey, it's okay, I've been through it, or... Yeah, Flannel was this today, but it's all right. He still cares about you. Or, yeah, Carly was that today, but you're going to get through it. Or that game was tough. I mean, there's so many examples that, sure, their parents can tell them or their professor or us. But when you hear that from your teammate, from your I mean, your sister right next to you, you know, that's that's who you're going into battle with every night. Or that's that's your, you know, that's who you're going into practice with and conditioning with. And it means more coming from them. So I think we do our job, for the most part, getting good kids Um we try to put our current players as a priority. So would we want this recruit to play with our current kids? Mm. Um, and it Great just, way it to say it. One, you know, it only takes one to ruin a locker room. I'm convinced of that. Yeah. Uh, you can have 12 good kids in that 13th one, uh, whether they're the star or they're the 13th kid. You know, it only takes one to mess that locker room up, and it's a really precious thing. Um, so we, we've crossed plenty of kids off of our list because of – you know what their parents are like in the stands or what their social media is like um just how their body language is whether they're up or down by 20 i don't know i mean there's just so many factors that and everyone has baggage but does that baggage fit with you know in our overhead compartment that we already have yeah (laughs) no it's just gotta fit and i think that's if we lose sight of that i mean it's kind of been that recurring theme of everything i've talked about is if we lose sight of that then it'll crumble easily um it's hard to build and easy to, to have it fall down, and we know that. But I do think, I mean, Flan being there for, this is his 20, this will be his 29th season, I'm pretty sure. Either 20 or 29 at Creighton. Um, he was 10 as an assistant coach under Connie Yori. 
and then going into his 18th or 19th year as a head coach. Um, I mean, and that's just incredible. Yeah. So to have that is, we're just so thankful because that if, there, if your turnover rate is is low <laughs> on your staff, then you're probably going to have a low turnover rate in your locker room, and then mm-hmm. hopefully on the court, right? Low turnover rate. Yeah, exactly. Uh, exactly. It starts with plan, and I think he's pretty particular about who he hires from logistical positions to assistants because there's a huge trust factor. Um, we got to work well together. You know, we got to be on the same page and and bring that to our kids. So it starts with recruiting. Um, you know, goes through plan, and then I think. Once you get good kids, they, they like to keep good kids around them. Yeah. Uh, and then the university, too, just last point is I think there's more to Creighton than just basketball. I really do. I mean, the Jesuit education, um, how high our academics, you know, reputation is, and our professional schools are, are amazing. So there is more to these kids than, you know, ball is life. Honestly, they come to Creighton, and it's a full experience versus just the athletic side. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I am now a Creighton graduate, by the way. I get alumni awesome. stuff. Yes, I got a mas- master's certificate and some leadership thing. Master so. Marty. Ah, well. Oh, you, you did the leadership, so did I. So we're both uh, the world's masters and leaders, okay? Like <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> just taking. No one's here yeah. to tell us different on this podcast. Yeah, it's, okay. Yeah, just, yeah, every, yeah. So, last question. Most important question I could possibly ask you. Oh, gosh. Which sister do you love more, Rachel or Andrea? I knew, I knew this wasn't going to be a real one. <laughs> I love them both equally. Uh, good bailout. <laughs> they're, they're great. Miss them and I try to see them as much as I can. Yeah, good good bailout. Good bailout. So <laughs> if you want to follow Carly Berger on social media, if you want to follow Creighton Women's Basketball on social media, where do you do that at, Carly? Um, my Twitter handle, Instagram handle, everything is, is still Carly Tritz. Um, just one word, Carly Tritz. And then um, Creighton Women's Basketball, same thing. Their Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, everything is Creighton WBB. And we try to post, I don't know, two, three, four times a week just to give you guys updates. And obviously it's an easy way to follow along during our season too. Awesome. Awesome. And I think I'm following most of those. So, And we'll get people following after this, Carl's. Yes, so. and then check out Jalen Agnew. Um, she plays her first WNBA game on Sunday, I believe. It's Sunday at four. Okay, so we're we're dro- I'll be dropping this Monday morning. We're recording this on Friday. So okay. when does she play after that? Do you know? Ooh, I'll have to check the schedule, but she's playing for the Atlanta Dream, so you can check out their social media. I think they're just at Atlanta Dream. Okay. Um, schedule is released there. Awesome, awesome. Carly Berger, the assistant women's basketball coach at one of the women's basketball assistant coaches at Creighton University. Carly, I hope you had a good time this morning. This was awesome. I did. Thanks for having me. This is great. Yeah, this is terrific. So uh, why don't you hold the line real quick? i got to wrap up a couple things, and we'll get you out of here. So uh, before, uh, like I said, before we leave here, uh, we want to thank our podcast sponsor, COSAC Chiropractic. If you're needing chiropractic services, don't hesitate to call Dr. Kevin or Dr. Heidi at 402-964-0300. Again, follow us on Twitter, a pen and a napkin. Download, rate, and review the pod. And, of course, uh, if you have any questions, comments, suggestions, or ideas, email me at a pen and a napkin at gmail.com. Carly Berger, it's been a privilege. It's been a pleasure. Uh, Just a wonderful, wonderful young lady. I've known her since she was about seven years old. And uh, just having her family and and our family's life has been a true privilege for us. So I wish Carly and the Creighton 
Ladies, nothing but luck going into next season. Coaches, let's stay safe. Let's pray for peace. And as always, let's be sure to hone our craft one day at a time.